0: Good morning, Emmanuel. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I wanna welcome everyone at our Franklin campus, our Banda campus, our Greenwood campus, and our microsites as well. Can we give it up for all of our microsites and campuses joining us today? And also want to welcome everyone joining us online, literally all across the country, all across the world on our online campus. We welcome you as well. If you're a first-time guest, first-time viewer at any of our campuses or sites or watching online, we're in a series right now called Savage Jesus. All right, Savage Jesus. Now, we've gotten a few emails about that title And I think it's because the word savage traditionally kind of describes somebody that is, you know, brutally violent or something like that. And so to kind of put that with Jesus, you see where the rub might come from? So what I want to do today is kind of just kind of share where this series came from, where the idea came from. It was actually several months ago uh, when we launched our Purdue Microsite, the leader of our Purdue Microsite invited a friend to come and experience the service and break up in a small group afterwards. And this particular person was not a believer in Jesus but was kind enough to accept an invitation. And that particular weekend, Pastor Matt Randall gave a talk on John chapter 13 where Jesus got down on his hands. Hands and feet and washed his disciples' feet. Remember that talk a couple months back? And, uh, and after the service was over, this friend who was invited to the microsite walked up to this girl and said, "Hey, you know what? I'm not a believer in Jesus, I'm not a Christian, but if Jesus washed his disciples' feet, that's totally savage." <laughs> she told me that story right here in this front down. She came the next week and told me that story. I thought, "That is going to be a series.") <laughs> And, and so here, here's what the word actually means in our vernacular today, in our world today. It does, it's not referring to somebody that's brutally violent. It's actually referring to somebody who's bold and brave and somebody who's willing to take risks and do things that are out of the ordinary, countercultural. And it's, it's, that's the way the word is used today. So just just a little bit of clarity, just in case the title is rubbing you the wrong way. If you have teenagers or middle school students, the word savage, you're familiar with it right? Am I right? <laughs> okay. So, so what we've been talking about in this series is kind of what kind of person was Jesus? Like, how, who was he? What was he like? A lot of us grew up with this idea that Jesus was just kind and gentle and soft and sort of like that Mr. Rogers character we've been talking about. The little children love to come to him. He always carried a lamb in his arms. And, and that's all true. Jesus is very compassionate, loving, kind, gentle. He is that way. But there's this other side of him that we've been talking about in this series that just can be described as, as savage. And we to the, he spoke to the winds and the waves, and they obeyed him. Like, who can do that? Last week we talked about how he walked into the temple, and he flipped the tables, and he made a whip, and he chased the animals out, and money was going everywhere, birds were going everywhere, animals were going everywhere. Chaos. Like, who would do that? Somebody that was totally willing to be Savage. And so that's what we want to talk about today because our view of Jesus or our vision of Jesus shapes our faith. And what that simply means is our perspective of what he was actually like shapes the way we relate to him, shapes how much we can trust him or not trust him, shapes the type of prayers that we pray or not pray, right? We have to have an accurate view of Jesus so that we can go to him when we need help. And so really that's what we've been talking about in this whole series. Now before we jump into the story today about Jesus being savage. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever had someone talk about you? Anybody? Yeah, raise your hand. Raise your hand. How many of you have ever... Raise your hand on this one too, okay? How many of you have ever talked about somebody? (laughs) So I love the honesty. See, we're in church. We can be honest. Like, you can't lie in church, right? So, I guess you can, but I wouldn't advise it. But so... Yeah, people talk about people, don't they? People talk about you, and at times you've talked, you talk about people. In your notes, I kind of wrote it like this. Is people talk about other people. When, when people do it and they say complimentary things or encouraging things or positive things, that's awesome. That's fine. I encourage that. Like if you have something good to say, don't hold it in. Say it. Tweet it. Write about it. Facebook, whatever it is. Like If it's positive and complimentary, get it out there. I'm not talking about that type of talk today. I'm talking about the negative kind. When someone talks about someone else in a negative way or put down, that, get, that gets put into the category biblically of the sin called... All right, let me try to that. It's a sin called gossip. Okay, that's a, not a good thing. We shouldn't do it. It's bad when people do it to us, and it's bad when we do it to other people. And There's lots of reasons why people gossip. That They talk badly about other people, not to their face, but to somebody else. And I think there's, I think a couple of reasons are just, you know, we, we, we feel better about ourselves in a twisted way. Like if we could put somebody else down or someone else puts us down, we, we kind of elevate ourselves like, oh, we're a little better than them. Sometimes that's what's going on. Sometimes we gossip about, about others in, in a group setting or with other people because we want to look smart or intelligent or in the know and we want to look cool. Like, oh, wow, I didn't know all that stuff. Sometimes we gossip because we're annoyed with people. Like we just talk about them because they just make us mad. We got a coworker, we got a, a brother, sister, we got a neighbor. You wouldn't believe my neighbor's doing, they let their dog out, poops all over my yard. You know, we're talking negative, you know. Just we're just annoyed with people. Sometimes it's just the fact that people are mean. I mean, there's there's a lot of mean people out there. Have you noticed? And just because they're mean, they say bad things about you know, other people, and it's, it falls in the category of gossip. I think one of the biggest reasons why we talk about other people, or people talk about people in a negative way, is because they're bored. They've got nothing else to do. People make a a living off of this stuff. Have you heard of cable news, late night cable news? I, I mean, people get paid for this stuff, you know? It's juicy gossip, and they just want to talk negatively about other people. They have no story that they're giving themselves to. They have nothing better to do. So they sit around and they make a profession or sport of talking about other people. Now, whatever the reason people talk about people or somebody's talking about you or you talked about them, whatever the reason is, you know, it really doesn't matter. It's bad. It's not a good thing. Now, I want to let you off the hook here for a second. This talk is not about gossip. The the three reasons why you shouldn't, the four things that God's gonna to do to you if you do it. Like that's not what this talk is about. Some of you are like, ooh, good, because you're feeling guilty, okay? Cause because you walk in today and you've got a problem with gossip. So so just relax, okay? Don't worry about it. We're not this is not a, I don't think you should do it, but this is not a talk about gossip. It's enough today just to say that it happens, and and it's probably going to continue to happen, and it happened to Jesus. People talked about Jesus. They did. Happens to you, happens to me, happened to him, we do it. Jesus was talking about John the Baptist to a group of people one time in Matthew chapter 11 and he was saying you know among women there's not a greater person that's ever been born than John the Baptist which is an incredible statement John the Baptist was the man he was awesome he was godly and and he says to this group of people you know John didn't come eating and drinking he but you said he had his, you you said he has a demon You're talking negative about John. You shouldn't talk negative about Because John's awesome, but you're gossiping about John. And then on top of that, verse 19, the son of man comes. Now he's talking about himself. The son of man, on the other hand, he comes and he's having feasts and he's going out to eat. and He's drinking and, and, and having parties. And here's what you say about him. You said John had a demon. And now you're saying the son of man is a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. Now this is partially true. And then there's some gross exaggeration here. Jesus would, in fact, eat and drink with disreputable, non-temple-going, non-Torah-keeping, non-Ten Commandments-keeping type of people. But he wasn't a glutton. What is a glutton? A glutton is someone who just overeats every meal. And it's just food. They, 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 They go beyond satisfaction. They always indulge in food. Jesus didn't do that. He ate. But he wasn't a glutton. He drank, he he would have a glass of wine, but he wouldn't have seven glasses until the point where he was inebriated, like he wasn't a drunkard. So they exaggerated these two ideas, but it wasn't completely wrong, but it wasn't right. But on this third point, they were spot on. You're a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. Now they meant it as a jab. They meant it as gossip. They meant it as something that was harmful. See, back in Jesus' day, to, to hang out with a disreputable person, a, a Ten Commandments type of breaking type of person, a person that didn't go to temple, didn't tithe, didn't fast, didn't pray, if, to associate with a type of person like that was, was against the law. It was against the culture. Religious people did not mix with those types of people. Why did they say this about Jesus? Tax collector, friend of tax collector, prostitutes, drunkard, glutton. Well, people gossip about other people. When they do, they're basically talking about or sharing their opinion about what they see a person do or not do or say or not say. That's essentially what gossip is. It's their opinion about the activities of that person. Well, Jesus has made made it a practice to eat and drink with sinners. It was part of his routine, his weekly routine, his, his ministry. He would regularly schedule in these times where he would associate with tax collectors and sinners and beggars and thieves and prostitutes. And, and people would observe this and then they started to gossip and talk about it because it was actually something he was doing. And let me tell you something, it was completely savage, <laughs> And when I use the word savage, I mean countercultural. I mean risky. I mean, if you're a a, a member of the clergy or a priest or a Pharisee or a rabbi, as Jesus was, you did not mix with these types of people, let alone eat with them. Eating with them was a sign of friendship. Eating with them was a sign to say, I'm okay with you. I accept you. I receive you. It was totally savage. It was against the law. I love what Brendan Manning had to say about this in his book, A Glimpse of Jesus. Brennan said this, the scandal that Jesus caused in first century Palestinian Judaism can scarcely be appreciated by Christians today. It was legally forbidden to mingle with sinners who were outside of the law. The prohibition on table fellowship or having a meal with beggars, prostitutes, tax collectors was a religious, social, and cultural taboo. He goes on to say this, he was not only breaking the law, but he was destroying the very structure of Jewish society. He was going against everything that they had, they had built. Like th- their understanding of, of holy people and, and, and sinful people was, was this. That God hates them. That God hates these non-temple going, Ten Commandments breaking, non-Torah keeping people. And he's just waiting for a moment to wipe them off the planet. Like all that he has for them is judgment and hatred. And he's about to send fire from heaven and destroy all of them. And so therefore, the priests would stay away from these people. The rabbis would literally, when they would go out in public, they would hug the walls of the buildings so as not to brush shoulders with any official sinners. And here's Jesus hanging out with them, dining with them, eating with them. It reminds me of a person who was completely savage. Her name is Rosa Parks. Now, we don't think of Rosa Parks and the word savage together, okay? Let me explain what what I mean. December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks gets on a bus. She's just going home from work. She's tired, long day. And the way they had the bus set up is the first four rows were for white people, and the the last ten rows or so were for black people. And in the center aisle was a sign that says colored Section." And so Rosa gets on there, and she's just, like I said, trying to get home from work. She sits in the first row for black people. Well, then the bus keeps making stops, stop, stops, and eventually uh, enough white people get on there where all the white seats are filled up, so now white people are standing. And the bus driver sees this and pulls over, gets up, and he walks over to the sign in the middle, and he moves it back one row and points at the four black people in the first, black, first row of the black section. He says, you four have to get up and let these white people sit. And they didn't move. But then he pressed in. He says, if you don't get up, there's gonna be some trouble. So three out of the four African-Americans get up and they move. You know what Rosa did? She scooted over to the window seat Don't you love it? I mean, this is what she said. I love it. This is directly from her mouth. When that white driver stepped back towards us, when he waved his hand and ordered us up and out of our seats, listen, listen, I felt the determination cover my body like a quilt on a winter night. She wasn't budging. She wasn't moving. She wasn't physically tight. I'm sure she was. But she was tired of giving in to this ridiculous system of segregation, and she had had enough. And she was totally savage. And sure enough, sure enough, you know, it led to her arrest. And she got arrested for civil disobedience. This is her mugshot. Have you ever seen her mugshot? This is, this is a savage picture right here, isn't it? Like, you know what the, you know what the bus driver said? to her? I didn't know this. The bus driver said, uh, ma'am, if you don't get up, I, don't call, I am calling the police. You know what she said? You may do so <laughs> just like that. Well, that led to the Montgomery, you know, bus boycott. 40,000 African Americans refused to ride the buses that year. That, that was a catalyst for the civil rights movement. What One act of a savage person that went against the culture that flipped the systems upside down. That's what Jesus was doing when he ate with tax collectors and sinners. He was taking the whole Jewish system and flipping it upside down. And it drove them nuts. The priests and the Levites. They didn't know what to do with this guy. Eventually... They killed them. In, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three stories. A story of a lost coin that a woman loses. A story of a lost sheep. A shepherd loses a sheep. And then the story of the prodigal son of the lost son. The third story is probably the greatest story Jesus ever told. He tells those three stories in response to the, critics, the criticism of the scribes and the Pharisees. Luke chapter 15, listen tax collectors and other notorious sinners often, not once in a while this wasn't an every now and then occurrence, they would often come to listen to Jesus teach, watch what happens this made the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such people and even taking it a step further and having a meal with them and this drove them crazy, you do not eat with these people They're the scum of the earth. God is just waiting for a moment to wipe them off the planet. Don't you understand that? You're messing with the whole system. Jesus was savage. He didn't care. He did it anyway. That's why he came. I think the greatest story that captures this whole tension is in Luke chapter 19. Some of you know the story. I, I feel like we talk about it a lot. It's worth it. Last year, Pastor Aaron Beasley, pastor at the Banta campus, he did a whole talk on this. And and he connected really well with the story because Zacchaeus, the guy in the story, was a wee little man, a short little guy. And and Aaron connected with this story in a way that I couldn't. And and because Aaron is a short little guy himself. If you want to know how short he really is, check out this picture right here. There's (laughs) Pastor Aaron and Pastor me. Uh, So... What he lacks in height, he makes up in personality and good looks. Don't you agree? And he does a great job over there at Banta. But he did a great job on this talk. And, and, and I want to try to do to do it justice. And I'm not going to, because I'm six foot four and I just can't connect as well. But here I still love this story. It's a story of a guy, hears about Jesus, he's gonna walk through town. Jesus is coming through Jericho. And Zacchaeus was, the Bible tells us in verse 2, that he was the chief tax collector in the region of, Jer- of Jericho. There were three main regions where, ta- where taxes were collected, Capernaum, Jerusalem, and Jericho. Zacchaeus was, was, was the leader of the tax cartel, and that's what it was, because it was a racket. They would overcharge people, and basically, essentially, make up percentages, and then they would pay off the Roman government, and then they would line their pockets with the difference. And no one could do anything about it because he was in charge and because of that he was very rich or we could say literally filthy rich he was a thief but he's there he wants to see jesus but he's too short he can't see over the crowd so what does he do he runs on ahead and he climbs up into a tree so he can get a little distance a little height so he can see jesus walk by why is he there maybe he's there because his money doesn't satisfy anymore He's got everything he's ever wanted and then some, and he's like, well, what's life about? We don't know why he was there. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's why he was there. Maybe he was there because he heard his friend Matthew had this dramatic conversion. Remember Luke chapter 5? Matthew was also a tax collector. He ends up throwing a party for Jesus, has this conversion. Maybe, maybe Zacchaeus is thinking, well, if Matthew can be on the inside, maybe I can too. Maybe he's there because he's just tired of being hated by everybody, and he wants to change his life, and maybe Jesus could help him change. We don't know why, but he's there and he wants to see a glimpse of Jesus. So he runs on ahead, he gets up into a tree. Something amazing happens in verse five. Jesus walks by and stops. Crowds of people, so much so that Zacchaeus couldn't even squeeze through to get a glimpse. And he stops, Jesus stops. Look at verse five. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your, say with me, home. Which when he said that word, everybody was like, (gasps) We know who this guy is. You we know who you are. You're a rabbi, and holy people do not mix with sinners. How can you say you're good? How can you even dare to go to his home? Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He was being a savage. He was poking the dog. He was mixing the pot. Tonight I'm coming to your house, he says. Totally savage. Zacchaeus is so excited. He's like, man, maybe, maybe it's true. What, what happened to Levi can happen to me. Maybe I can change my life. He comes down out of the tree. In his excitement and joy, they go off to his house. He has this amazing conversion experience. He, tell, he tells Jesus, I'm going to give 50% of all my wealth back to the poor. And if I've stolen money from anybody, I'll give them four times in return. Essentially, he gives away almost all of his wealth. Because he meets Christ. You talk about a conversion. Whew. But the people... The people around Zacchaeus, the people who saw this going down, that heard Jesus' voice, listen to, what they, listen to what happens to them in verse 7. But the people, not the priests, not the Levites, we know they're upset with Jesus. But now the attitude, the mindset of the Pharisees and the scribes had, had rubbed off on the people. Just the average run of the mill people, they're standing. The people were displeased. Here's what they said He's gone to be the guest of a notorious. Sinner, they grumbled to themselves. What's going on here? The people themselves began to lose sight of their own condition. The people themselves of the village began to think they were better than others. The people themselves had become self-righteous. Isn't it interesting how self-righteousness can blind a person? of their own sinfulness. Isn't it interesting how self-righteousness can, can turn your heart cold towards other people? They should have been happy for Zacchaeus. They should have been thrilled. Well, The Messiah is going to your house. Oh my gosh, this is, he's gonna forgive you. He's gonna accept you. He's gonna have a meal. You're gonna cook for him. He's gonna be at your table. They should have been thrilled for him. They were displeased. Why? Because of their self-righteousness. They were upset. They were probably thinking, man, why didn't he come to my house? I go to the temple every weekend. I fast, I tithe all my 10% of my money. I pray, I do this. If he he should go to anybody's home, he should come to mine, because I am a good Jew. See that? Jesus picks the worst, the worst guy out of the crowd. He says, I'm coming to your house. Why? Stir that pot because he's a savage. (laughs) He knew exactly what the people would think and feel. And that's why he did it. They were upset. I love what one Bible commentator said, William MacDonald. The people overlooked the fact that coming into a world like ours, Jesus was limited exclusively to such homes. Wow, what an insight. If Jesus were going to come to your house today, what kind of home would he come to? Are you self aware enough to know that if he came to your house tonight for dinner, he would come to the house of a notorious sinner? Do you have enough self awareness to know? One time Jesus says, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, I came to call sinners see if you and i think we're among the righteous we will miss an opportunity to make a meal for the savior for the messiah for the son of god like the people did he went for the person who knew that he was a sinner are you self-aware enough to know of your your own brokenness and your own sinfulness i love what brendan manning used to say when he was alive he would literally preach to thousands of people, packed audiences, 5,000, 6,000, 7,000. He would woo them with his speeches. He would tell them, the cheese is sliding off of my cracker. He would say it often. I heard him say it in several different environments. And what he meant was, yeah, I'm a decent preacher and I've written 10 books and traveled the country and traveled the world and talk about Jesus, but I'm still a sinner. My cheese is sliding off my cracker. Is your cheese sliding? Are you all perfect? Or at least trying to give the image of perfection? If you are, you're going to miss Christ. You're going to miss the Savior. Here's his mission. Look what he says in verse 10. Jesus says, look, you want to know why I went to Zacchaeus' house? You want to know why I'm hanging out with tax collectors, prostitutes, gluttons, people that break the law, thieves, robbers? because that's why I came. The son of man has come to seek and to save the who? The found, the 99 who were found? No, he came to seek and save the lost. Are you self-aware enough to know that you're among the lost today? What does lost mean? Does that mean that God doesn't know where you are? (laughs) No, God knows where every human being is at all times. Lost biblically simply means to be out of place, not where you should be, not in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's what was, that's what was the, that was the problem with Zacchaeus, that was the problem with Levi, that was the problem with the people that Jesus was spending time with. He was trying to put them back into their proper place, their found place. The problem with me and the problem with you and the problem with human beings in the world is we are out of place. We are not in relationship with God. Paul wrote it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, for God was in Christ. This is important. This makes Christianity different from Buddhism and, and, and all the other religions, Hinduism, the Muslim faith, the Jewish faith. This, this alone is what makes Christianity the way to God. Listen, God was in Christ. Jesus was his strategy. Jesus was his mechanism. Jesus was his plan. God the Father was, through Jesus in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Not the continents and the oceans. Not that world. The people in the world. No longer counting the people's sins against them. Well, what does that mean, reconciling? Well, you know what it means to, to be broken in a relationship and, ha- you know, you've had some sort of argument or there's been some sort of offense and the relationship has been severed. And then you also know what it's like through experience, hopefully, to come back into that relationship and say, hey, don't worry about it. I forgive you. Let's, let's let bygones be, be, be bygones and let's let's get back into fellowship. That's called reconciliation. Well, sin separates us from God. And in order for God to put us back into our rightful place, he had to reconcile us. How? By not counting our sins against us. Well, how did he do that? Look what Peter says. Peter puts it like this. Christ suffered for our sins. How did he not count our sins against us? Christ, the mechanism, Christ, the strategy, suffered for for our sins once for all time he never sinned but he died for guess who for us if you're self-aware enough to know it he died for me he died for you why to bring you not humanity in general not seven and a half billion people in general but you listen he stopped on the road that day and he looked up into the tree and he called out his name he didn't say hey you mister he said Zacchaeus He knew his name. Hundreds of people everywhere. And he knew Zacchaeus' name. I remember the day when I heard Jesus say my name. He said, Danny, I died for you. And I love you. Will you follow me? Does God love humanity in general? Yes. But he knows your name. And he calls it out. He died for sinners to bring you, as an individual, safely home to God. And how did he do it? He had his strategy, his mechanism, his son suffer for our sins. See, there are some people that believe, and I understand why they believe it, and their heart's in the right place. They're just wrong. There's some people believe that because God is love, which he is, that every human being who's ever lived no matter what they've done, is going to go to heaven when they die. Because after all, God is love. And I know why they believe that. I wish it were true. But it's not. And here's why it's not true. Because yes, God is 100% love, but he is also 100% just. It's part of his character. Think about it with me like this for a second. If there was a judge locally or even beyond this region if there was a judge who constantly heard case after case after case of 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 theft and murder and rape and extortion and crime after crime and every single time no matter what the judge would say you're good to go you don't have to pay a fine you don't have to go to jail what would we do with a judge like that what would this crowd right here just this crowd what would this crowd do with a judge like that would we keep him and say well he's a great judge or would we boot him out or boot her out? What do you think? Yes, sir. Option A or option B? We would, probably, we would get rid of them in a heartbeat. Why? Because we can't have a society like that where everybody gets to go free and nobody has to pay a penalty and there's no justice. No, we cry for justice. We want justice. We demand justice. Well, why wouldn't, why wouldn't we want that from God? of God would he be if he just let everybody off the hook, no matter what, no matter what they did? Oh, it's no problem. I'm just going to sweep all this into the carpet. I'm like, I am not even see it. And everybody gets to go to heaven when they die. That wouldn't be a very good God, would he? So how is it that the God can be all loving, 100% love, and at the same time be 100% justice? It's called the cross. It's called Christ. It's called Jesus. It's called The crucifixion. See, when you look at a cross and when you hear about the crucifixion, what you're seeing is love, the love of God and the justice of God come together into one event. How so? Christ suffered for our sins. Someone had to pay. The justice of God had to be met. And so, God, because He loves you and because He loves me, He says, You don't have to pay. You don't have to pay for your sins. I'm going to have my son take the penalty for your sins. And in the cross, we see the love of God and the justice of God come together. Why? So that you can come home to God. So that you can be reconciled to the Father. The Apostle John was writing in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 5. Listen to what he says. All glory to Jesus who loves us and freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. Today is communion weekend. And communion is this little ceremony that God gave us, Jesus gave us. And he says, I want you to take the bread. It represents my body that was nailed to the cross, broken for you. And I want you to eat it together. And as you do it, I want you to remember me. Remember what? Remember what I did to bring you home to my Father. Remember what I did to reconcile you back to God. I am the strategy. I am the mechanism. I am the way. There is no other. When you eat this bread, remember. When you drink the juice, it represents the blood that I spilled on the cross. Remember... Why I spilled it. I spilled it to bring you safely home to God. I spilled my blood. I took the nails. I took the punishment. I took the crown of thorns. I took the whippings. They put nails through my feet. They put a, they put a sword through my side. I took it so that you could come safely home. To God. I took the penalty you were supposed to pay. I suffered for your sins. I spilled my blood for you. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Wow. This is a significant event. Which is why we don't do it every week. I know some of you email us, can we do communion every week? Well, no. (laughs) That would make it commonplace and not special. We want it to be special. So today is communion. We're going to receive it. And as we receive it, you're going to remember the price that God paid to bring you safely home to himself. But before we do that, some of you here today, you're not in yet. You heard the message today and the cross and the love of God and the justice of God and it comes together at the cross and, and it's an offering to you and the, the blood and the, and the bread and the juice and all of that. You're not in yet. Listen to what the Bible says in, in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You could say this, anyone. John three sixteen, perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him will not perish. If you're watching today online, one of our campuses at a microsite today, and you feel led, man, I need need to to put my trust in. I need to be forgiven of my sins. I need to experience, I don't wanna pay for my sins myself. If Jesus already paid for that, I'm just gonna accept it. I'm gonna receive that right now. This is your moment right now for you to reach out to God and call upon him. And if you do, you will be Saved saved from what? Saved from the penalty of your sins. I'm gonna say a simple prayer. Take these words, back them with the faith in your heart. Maybe it's small, it's okay. It could be small faith, it's enough to save you. Reach out to him, call upon him right now and you'll become his child. Will you pray with me? Do you feel led to? Jesus, I call upon you today. I understand now you suffered from my sins you were innocent but you still died in my place you paid the price I couldn't pay to bring me home to your father I believe that I trust in you today wash me of my sin cleanse me and make me your kid, your child. And from this day forward, teach me to love you, trust you, obey you, and honor you with my life. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, here's what the Bible says. When one person turns to Christ, there is rejoicing in heaven. So can we give God glory? Come on, nice and loud, all over our campuses, our microsites, online. Amen. Greatest decision you will ever, ever make. Now, as we wrap up today, as I mentioned, today is communion weekend. We got some bread. We got some juice. In a moment here, the buckets are going to be passed. Jesus said, eat this bread, take it, do it in remembrance of me. Drink this juice as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. And then Paul said this, as often as you eat this bread and drink this juice, you will declare the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, you will declare God's mechanism of reconciliation. So this is a message to ourselves and to the rest of the world. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you that through the broken body of your son and the spilled blood of your son, we can have fellowship with you we can be reconciled, we can be forgiven of our sins. You no longer count our sins against us because Christ suffered in our place. Thank you for the gift of Jesus. As we eat and as we drink, may we do this in remembrance of you, amen.
1: Must my savior's blood.